Amen. Thank you, Father, for this time that we can gather together in worship of your holy name. As we call the words of our Lord upon the asking of the disciples, why do you teach in parables? His answers moves in us a sense of fear and trembling. It is not given to those who do not have ears to hear to understand the proclamation of the gospel. But for those who have ears to hear, they hear, they understand, they repent, they believe. Father, we are given in this example from Christ's own, word, Christ's own words a clear instruction of the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in the hearing of the individual. We cannot understand your word, nor can we value or retain it, nor can we explain it unless and until the Spirit opens our ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that you would do a sovereign miracle in hearing among your people this day and even the lost, that the proclamation of your word would be heard by those whose ears, whose hearing has been quickened by the sovereign work of our Almighty God. Oh, furthermore, we pray that you would open our spiritual eyes to see, to conceive, to understand that which otherwise remains a mystery, that which mere human understanding, mere fallen reasoning could never in a million years describe or plumb or understand or apply. We pray that you would override all of this by moving past our human limitations, by pushing aside the sin, by a sovereign work of grace, so that we might understand your holy word and its depth and its truth and its clarity and its power and its glory. We pray, Lord, that you would also equip your church for the proclamation of your scriptures as well, through a life lived and a testimony of obedience and faith, and through words spoken as you grant opportunity to share with the lost a reason for the hope within. We pray in all of this that you might be glorified, not just in this service, not just in the proclamation of your word, though this we ask. We pray furthermore that, that your name would be glorified in your church, in your church in and through their testimony even to this world. We pray that the redeemed of the Lord would say so and that the knowledge and the proclamation of what we have to share would only increase with the proclamation of your scriptures this day and all that Christ might be glorified, that he might inhabit the lips of his people and that hearts might be bowed low before the testimony of his glory and power and repentance and that they might believe and trust that he is the exclusive way of salvation the door unto eternal life, the wellspring of living water, which flows unto eternal glory. We thank you, Lord, for these promises. We thank you, Lord, for these means. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, let us not forget what a glorious, blood-bought gift and privilege it is to open the Scriptures together to do so in a corporate context, in the assembly of the beloved, and to proclaim the name of our Lord without fear of reprisal these days in this land. These things are not a given, though he is worthy, whether we be persecuted or live in a free land, to gather to proclaim his glory. Our forebears have done so at great cost to their personal lives, and this is why we have uh, the gospel in the first place. And so we must consider the value of what we gather to proclaim and to understand this day. And as we do so, let our heart and our perspective be shaped to appreciate all the greater. What, the, what is the riches and the knowledge, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? This morning we consider Psalm 107, the second portion. 
the greater second portion, 17 through 43, will be our text today under this title, Attend and Consider. Title is drawn from verse 43, Whoever is wise, let him attend these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. My prayer is that the hearers in the reach of this message today would be proven wise inasmuch as they attend to these things. That is the glory of the Lord revealed in Psalm 107. That they would consider, and similar, similarly, that they would consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The goal of this morning's message, its aim is therefore to proclaim true redemption and to call the redeemed to worship. In worship that we might attend and consider the glories of our great God, His steadfast love unto His own. Out of reverence for the Word of God, would you stand as you're able this morning for the reading of God's Scripture? Let us begin in Psalm 107, 17 through the end of the chapter. Listen as the infallible Word of Christ, His Holy Scripture, is proclaimed in your hearing today. Verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. Verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Verse 28, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into, water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction, and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Verse 43, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Psalm 107 in the second portion continues building a cumulative case. That means adding one thing upon another upon another. Building a cumulative case for worship of the one true God responsible for the timeline of the universe and the course of each individual life. 
the song establishes beyond reasonable argument. That is to say, only a fool would disagree. The song establishes beyond reasonable argument that Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant, is worthy of praise. Again, only a fool would disagree. The truly wise and the truly enlightened are distinguished by their consideration and testimony of the steadfast love of the Lord. Hence the injunction at the beginning, verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Again, the truly wise and the truly enlightened are truly understanding. They resonate with that verse. They know that they have been redeemed. Therefore, they proclaim as much. Are you not willing and eager to share the most exciting thing that happened in your life of late? Think of the last conversation you had, making small talk. What are you interested in? What's new and what's going on? What did you go through? And the things that we tend to answer those questions with is that which has made the deepest impression on our soul in the moment, at least, or that which holds our attention, that which (coughs) we value, that which we enjoy. As believers, if we are honest with ourselves, There is a category above all the passing pleasures, among all the fleeting values of this life that should hold the cardinal or main position in our soul. And that is the knowledge of our redemption. The fact that God saved us from the depths and uh, and the punishment, the wages of sin. And so as we consider this in wisdom, as we consider this in truth, we are moved to obey Psalm 107 too. We the redeemed say so. By their consideration, the truly wise, they testify of the steadfast love of the Lord. This message considers two more illustrations. So my sermon today picks up on two more illustrations of peril or trouble, difficulty, hardship, poetically revealed in verses 17 through 32. That is to say, those who are lost to their own devices are like sick men on their deathbeds, we find in our text today. Moreover, they are like storm-tossed sailors or shipwrecked seamen, uh, people who are uh, tossed to and fro on the waves, clinging to the wreckage of their vessel after a devastating storm at sea. In these verses, 17 through 32, we continue to note the recurring pattern structuring these sections. And these are four categories we introduced last sermon. But four times over, we have a description of trouble. That would be like uh, men on their deathbed or shipwrecked at sea. We have a description of trouble. Secondly, we have the cry of the people. In their distress, they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. Thirdly, we have the Lord's intervening, His deliverance. And fourthly, we have the people's praise, their response in light of His salvation. Indeed, we mark two phrases today. We should notice, if you have a highlighter at some point in your Bible, you might want to highlight these two phrases which occur. They're repeated four times each throughout the body of the psalm. The first one is, note, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Word for word, this is verse 6, this is verse 13, verse 19, verse 28. So this uh, helps to understand the structure of the psalm and the emphasis and the themes. Those things that are repeated point us that direction, do they not? And the second phrase, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. This is verse 8. Verse 15, verse 21, and verse 31. And of course, these are summarized in the final verse. That is to say, in light of the thankfulness God deserves for His wonderful works, and uh, in light of His answering our cries for help when we are in distress, therefore, verse 43 concludes, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. 
That would be an application point in closing. These themes are further emphasized by the bookends of the opening and closing context of the psalm, as we just noted. Having made his case with irrefutable force, again, only a fool would argue, the reader or the singer is called to account. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Attend and consider, title of this message. And so we consider them in this sermon today. It's an introduction for you. Let me give you a heading, as is our typical pattern in organizing sermons here. The heading for today's message is Psalm 107 commands the attention of the following. Psalm 107 commands the attention. You could also substitute calls to worship the following. First, one-time afflicted invalids. Another phrase could be sinners on their deathbed. Psalm 107 commands the attention, calls to worship, sinners on their deathbed. Number two, Psalm 107 commands the attention of one-time shipwrecked castaways or storm-tossed sailors. Those are the two pictures of peril. And then number three, verses 33 through 43, conclude with a command of the attention of the righteous and the wicked. And how does God command their attention? Under that final point, we'll find three ways. By cursing lands, by redeeming livelihoods, by reversing fortunes. It's a basic outline for our message today. Psalm 107, first of all, commands the attention of one-time afflicted invalids. Invalids means uh, sick so much, sick beyond uh, recovery. Uh, afflicted invalids or sinners on their deathbed. This is what we were like before Christ saved us. Psalm 107, 17 illustrates our peril in this way. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. Right there in that verse, we see that there is a relationship between the physical health of an individual and their relationship to the Lord, and their standing in the covenant. And, and verse 18 goes on to say, in more specifics, they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. The Bible relates physical well-being to spiritual well-being analogously. There's an analogy between a healthy person and a healthy soul. And of course, we know in the full understanding of things that we aren't promised perfect health this side of glory. But we are promised perfect health in the resurrection of the dead. In the second resurrection, when our body is raised eternal unto glory, that is the biblical definition of perfect health. But in the meantime, the question may come to you. Is there a relationship between the depleted condition of people, even physically, and their spiritual state? Well, yes, there often is. In fact, there would be no sickness, would be no death, would be no disease, would be no malady or pathology, disease of the body, disease of the mind, affliction of the body, affliction of the mind. There would be none of these of any kind were it not for the fall. Kids, answer this question. You ready? The wages of sin is? Death. That's correct. The wages of sin is death. And this death shows up Whispers of death attend us all along the way. The frailty of our human condition and the fact that our body is racked with us, uh, that is racked with all kinds of different sicknesses and so forth, depending who you are in the course of God's providence in your day-to-day -day life. But as Isaiah 53 tells us, Jesus Christ was crucified for our transgressions. By his stripes we are, kids, can you answer this question? The Bible says, by Jesus' stripes we are, does anyone know? Healed, Healed is correct, thank you. Therefore, we see in Isaiah 53, as we touch upon here in Psalm 107, a relationship the Bible uses between healing and the state of the soul. That is to say, to be perfectly healed, biblically speaking, is to have the assurance 
of eternal life. And you will be perfectly healed one day. However, if there is sickness that attends us between now and then, it is a reminder of the wages of sin. And sometimes, that, sometimes in, the, in the biblical record, that reminder is even more pointed than others. Consider one example. So the Israelites are going from Egypt to the Promised Land. And kids, do you remember what would usually happen if they complained against Moses? Good things or bad things? That's correct. Bad things if they complained against Moses. So there was this one time, you probably remember, they complained against God's appointed leader and they began to be bitten by snakes. Do you remember this, kids? So these snakes and their venomous bites, these poisonous jaws, would clamp onto the people and they couldn't run, they couldn't escape unless a way of salvation was provided. And so you see in that short example, I actually have a reference, we won't turn to it, but in... Uh, the book of Numbers, for instance, verses 19, or uh, excuse me, verses, or chapter 21, verses 6 through 9, we have a record of this event. But the, the record there, the narrative, however short, takes the same shape as these um, four sections of Psalm 107. There was a great peril. People were bitten by snakes. They cried out, and God provided deliverance. And then after that, there was a thankfulness for their salvation. So what was the peril? Well, ultimately... Or what was the trouble? Ultimately, it was their sin. There would be no venomous snake bites if they haven't, hadn't been rebellious against the Lord's authority. But the very present danger was the venomous bites of these serpents. Kids, do you remember how they were healed? Do you, get, do you remember what Moses did? God gave him instructions. What did Moses do? He put a snake on a cross or a pole. That is correct. And he lifted it up. And he said, everyone who looks at this bronze serpent will be healed. And so those who lifted their eyes to that uh, way of salvation, as it were, were healed of the venomous snake bites. What is the meaning of this? Seems mysterious, seems weird. We find the meaning of this fulfilled in the book of John. When uh, Jesus says himself that the Son of Man must be lifted up on a pole, on a cross, as it were, just as the bronze serpent was of old, so that all who look to him, he who knew no sin, who has made a curse for us, might be healed of the venomous snake bite of our sin that would certainly kill us and send us to hell if there was no way of salvation. So here we see that we, every sinner, was one time an afflicted invalid. We had the mark of sin's wages in our body, the weakness of the flesh, physical sin, and the fact that we all will die. Our clocks are winding down. We were sinners on our deathbed. This was the peril. Foolishness of sin is evident sometimes in its physical effects on the human body. So many maladies are directly connected to the individual effects of spurning the counsel of the Most High, of breaking the law of God, and all of them are connected to the fact that we live in a fallen world. This is the peril that Psalm 107, 17 and 18 so accurately describes. And where does it lead us to? Well, notice in verse 18, they loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Death is a gate. What is a gate? Well, a gate is a door, right? It opens and it leads to a different area, a different domain, if you will. Death is a gate. And at that gate, it will open and it will lead you to a different domain. What does the afterlife, so to speak, hold for those who are not healed of spiritual sickness, as it were, spiritual death? Well, that gate opens unto hell eternal. Death is a gate. At the gates of death, we are led by the frailty and fallenness of this world. But what lies beyond that gate? The New Testament tells us the only way of escape 
is a way that is narrow, and few there be that find it. That gate, that door, is identified as who, kids? Who is the door unto eternal life revealed in the New Testament? Who is the door to eternal life? That's correct, Jesus. Jesus says, I am the door, and all who enter by way, or by way of me, so to speak, will gain eternal life. Psalm 107 illustrates our peril in this way. As a malady, as a sickness, unto death, sinners on their deathbed, that leads them to the gate. And what lies beyond that gate can only be assured to be positive if we have a way of salvation. So the people cry out. So under one-time afflicted invalids or sinners on their deathbed, we have peril, and then we have cry and deliverance. Verse 19, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. And that's one of our four-time repeated verses. So this is a pattern. There is distress, and people become aware of their sin unto death, as it were. And then they cry out to the Lord. This corresponds to repentance when the gospel is preached. Oh, Lord, save me. I put my faith in your way of salvation. And God sends his Son to us individually, even as he sent his Son in the incarnation in time, to deliver them from their distress. Verse 20 says as much. In a shadow form, he sent out his word and healed them. Jesus is called the word. No, no accident. John says, behold, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And he identifies Jesus Christ as the word. Thus fulfilling passages like this of old. Psalm 107, 20. He sent out his word. Or you could say, he sent forth his son and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. People cry out. And the Lord answers in his deliverance. And so we see this beautiful picture. He sent his word by way of the prophets. He sent his word by way of prophecies, by way of the Psalms. He sent his word incarnate by way of Jesus Christ. And when the people cried out, and those who received his word received the stripes of, the, of faith in the future Messiah, or the stripes uh, by way of faith in the, come, in the Messiah who has come and were healed of their spiritual sickness, delivered from their sickness unto perfect eternal healing. Notice this in contrast to verse 11. On the other side of the coin, the wicked react to the words of God in this way, for they had rebelled against the word of God. I should back up to 10. There are some who yet stand or yet sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and irons. This is another picture of peril. You guys might remember this from last week. This is enslaved prisoners. People are enslaved in the prison of sin, according to this picture. Why? Because they rebel against the words of God. They remain sick unto death. They remain enslaved and imprisoned. Or the first picture, they remain wandering, famished, without so much as a morsel of food or a drink of water in a desert with pending death right around the corner. They remain in the final analogy on a sea that's whipped up into a hurricane in a tiny ship by clinging to wreckage, almost drowning beneath the waves. They remain in that condition even unto death so long as they remain rebellious against the words of God. And furthermore, verse 11, spurn the counsel of the Most High. But once they listen to the Word made flesh, once they heed the word of God in written form, once they realize that this is their safety line, this is their hope, this is their means of salvation, he sends out his word and heals them, then they receive and experience the deliverance of his word from their destruction. That's peril, cry, and deliverance. And so what is the response, the appropriate way 
to response, how then shall we act in light of these truths? Verse 21, one of our repeated verses, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. This is a vision and purpose statement for what we have done even this morning. Beginning our worship here today by singing songs of joy, which celebrate, proclaim, and remember the deeds of our Lord. A sacrifice of thanksgiving is an appropriate act of worship. What are sacrifices? An offering of something you would normally consume yourself, granted to the Lord in demonstration of His worthiness. One potential definition I'd just like to submit. A sacrifice of thanksgiving can be thought of, let me submit, as an offering of something you would normally consume yourself, granted to the Lord in demonstration of His worthiness. On a Sunday morning, we normally treasure our free time on the weekend, don't we? And we look for all kinds of ways to consume that time ourselves. But in recognizing that the Lord, who has delivered us from the peril of our sin, as saving a man on his deathbed from certain suffering and death, we offer to the Lord this block of time in reverence of the Lord's day, time we would otherwise consume ourselves. By the way, this is a biblical vision for fasting, too. At appropriate times, the Lord might lead you to leave aside something you normally indulge. Why? Because He's worthy. Set aside something you would normally consume, maybe food or something else, a leisurely activity or whatever. Set aside that. Why? Uh, because God is worthy of worship, and it is a demonstration of our appreciation of the Lord, something like a sacrifice of praise when we offer to Him that which we would normally consume for ourselves in a demonstration in a profession, it's the redeemed saying so, that he is worthy. Consider this little quote, I can go without because he is my all. I can go without because he is my all. That's really the heart of worship. That's the heart of a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, or the spiritual discipline of something like fasting. The deeds of the Lord are in fact a prominent theme of true and biblical worship. The, they ought to be the artistic expression of a godly culture. And this is a vision even beyond your own personal singing of songs. I pray for the day, and I hope you do as well, for a reformation of the arts, a reformation of expressions of joy in culture. Every culture has them. It's not a matter of, as Doug Wilson is fond of saying, of whether, but which. Which expressions of culture will proclaim what's worthy of speech and artistry and expressing ourselves. I think about music quite a bit because I've been a fan and created music in the past and so forth, and it strikes me that music, honestly understood, is an expression of something deep within the soul. So when you listen to a song, you're listening to something like a mirror. It's almost like a periscope that allows you to see in the reverse. You know, a periscope, the submarine is underwater, you stick the periscope up, and then uh, it can view what's above or whatever. And then think of this, I'm not sure if this analogy really works that great, but you could look down the periscope and, and what if you could see that there was a submarine there? There's sort of a tell of what's inside the soul when you listen to an artistic expression. And the commandment here is to have your soul so consumed with the reality of your salvation that you cannot help but overflow with expressions of the soul that celebrate the deeds of the Lord. And so I pray that our songs, our expressions of the soul, our artistic endeavors would be ever more consumed by worthy themes, such as that which Psalm 107 models for us. 
So Psalm 107 commands the attention of sinners on their deathbed. One time afflicted invalids, no longer on our deathbed, uh, as far as the wages of sin is concerned, we now rejoice as those who have been delivered from hell and the grave. Major point number two, Psalm 107 commands the attention of one-time shipwrecked castaways or one-time storm-tossed sailors. Listen to 23. Hey, kids, I got an assignment for you. Ready? So when, you, when I read these verses, see what Bible story it reminds you of. Can you guys do that? So I'm going to read these verses, and then you tell me a Bible story that it reminds you of, okay? Listen closely. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. Then they saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. Does that remind you of any Bible stories, Theo? Yeah. Is there a time in the Bible where there was big waves at the, on the sea? Can you think of one? When Jesus was on the boat with his disciples, I heard. What else? What else? Jonah and the whale. Two great examples. Any others? The ark. Noah and uh, the great flood. I will accept all three. Those are the ones that I have written down. Jesus is on a storm-tossed sea with his disciples. Noah is on a storm-tossed sea uh, with the future of the habitable earth once the waters subside. Jonah is in a storm-tossed sea as discipline from running from the Lord. And so all three of these circumstances are incidents in history that further illustrate the reality that the Word of God commands the attention of those who, left to their own devices, will be absolutely destroyed by the wages of sin, which can be compared to waves that destroy and crumple and make a complete joke out of the most seaworthy vessel man could possibly engineer. You cannot show me a vessel that is created by man that isn't in some way vulnerable to the forces of nature when God stirs them in his fury to take consequences, to take out his wrath in consequences for sin. There's a good example in the case of Jonah. Turn to Jonah 2, if you would, to pick up on one reference that the kids echoed as well. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah, uh, the experience of the prophet, the wayward prophet, can certainly relate, he can certainly relate to Psalm 107. In other words, the word of God comes to him as one who is uh, something like a shipwrecked castaway, a storm-tossed sailor. And as it comes, or as he realizes his peril, peril, he cries out. So Jonah prayed to the Lord, 2 verse 1, his God from the belly of the fish. Insane. Notice verse 1. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. Do you see the parallel to Psalm 107? The distress is Jonah has rebelled, and the only solution for the seas to be calm is that he be thrown overboard. And so he's thrown overboard as a disciplinary consequence for disobeying the Lord. The seas are calmed, yet Jonah is in more distress still. He's sinking beneath the waves. As she, he compares it to the place of the dead, the belly of Sheol, hell as it were, a hellish condition. He cries out to the Lord in his distress. He cries out as a shipwrecked castaway, as a storm-tossed sailor. And from beneath the waves, the Lord hears his voice. 
And after, and how, kids, how did God save Jonah? Do you remember when he was under the water? Fish swallowed him and eventually threw him up on dry land. Very good. So after this incident is completed, Jonah says the following. The waters closed over me to take my life. Verse 5. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. He's comparing drowning to the jaws of hell, deserving judgment for sin. He's comparing the two. Yet you brought me up or you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I love that verse, verse 7. My life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, my prayer came to you into your holy temple. How in the world was Jonah's prayer heard in the temple when he was drowning beneath the depths of that storm-tossed sea? He needed a supernatural priest. The only way that Jonah's prayer could be heard in the temple, in the place of God's dwelling, is if there was a supernatural priest. You see, at this time, people would go through the man, uh, the typological man, uh, mere man priest, to bring their prayer request before the Lord. But here Jonah cries out, and he is heard in the temple. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the supernatural priest, the one who represents every sinner ultimately before the Father, heard his prayer and took his case before the Lord and provided in his future death and resurrection salvation for Jonah. Certainly deliverance from this discipline of the Lord. Years ago, there was a fellow named Mitch, and he was young at the time, late teens, I suppose, a friend of my brother's, just a great kid. And he, upon hearing the gospel preached several times, multiple times from this pulpit, confessed his sins and believed in Jesus Christ. He was regenerate. He confessed. He was born again. He was converted to Christianity. And when he gave his testimony, he read these verses here, and he said, anyone who is truly saved, I always remember this testimony, he said, anyone who is truly saved like I have been can relate to this right here. He was absolutely right. Jonah 2 confirms this, and so does Psalm 107. Mitch understood that in his sin, he was like Jonah, sinking between, beneath the waves of God's righteous judgment, unless and until there was a supernatural priest, Jesus, who could hear his prayer and pull him up from certain death, death and rescue him from the depths of the sea as the ocean. There's peril. We are drowning in our sins. There's deliverance. The supernatural priest lifts us out of the waters of judgment. Uh, someone referenced Noah. Another great picture. The waters of judgment flood the earth, yet there is an ark representing Jesus Christ that delivers the, uh, Noah, his family, and the rest of the world from certain peril. Notice in verse 28 back in Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He, uh, kids, you want to play that game again? So listen to this, these next couple of verses and tell me a, a time in Scripture that this reminds you of. Everybody ready? So see if you can figure out a story, a Bible story that reminds you of this. Verse 29. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. That's, that's exactly right, Theo. Thank you. God in the boat. So Jesus Christ was in the boat with his disciples. And what did he say to the storm? Peace, be still, right? And what happened after that, kids? Immediately the storm 
stopped and the waves subsided and there was calm. Notice how Jesus in his earthly ministry fulfilled Psalm 107, 28 and 29. Then they cried to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What does that refer to, everybody? Well, uh, trivia. When you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, what name is that? Yahweh. Yahweh, that is correct. Thank you, Ren. So capital L-O-R-D refers to the high covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. So when people are in distress as drowning, or they're in distress being threatened by the storm at sea, they cry to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivers them. How does He do so? He speaks, He made the storm be still, and the waves were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet, and then He brought them to their desired haven. The people cry out to Yahweh, Yahweh speaks to the storm, and it is quiet. There is evidence for the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was Yahweh. When he fulfilled on the Sea of Galilee that act of storm hushing, if you will, of quieting the stormy seas, he was fulfilling right here. Psalm 107, cry out to Yahweh, Yahweh in flesh, Jesus in the boat, speaks to the storm, and it is still thus demonstrating that he, as God, has authority over all forces of nature because he created them in the first place. Amen? Jesus is Lord of the stormy sea. This takes on further implications when we consider that in the ancient worldview, the seas, the uh, chaos of the unpredictable weather patterns that would destroy a ship in a moment on Earth's oceans and so forth, that this picture represented the height of intractable chaos. That is, uh, the ancients almost worshipped the idea that the sea had, so to speak, a mind of its own. And you could not predict it. It was chaotic and so forth. Well, is there anything that could control the sea? You know, what did the sailors do in Jonah's day? They cried out to all their gods. They're like, everybody who's ever heard of a god, pray to that god. And then they go through them all. Everybody, somebody remember, is there any other gods that you can think of? How about, is everybody awake on the ship? One more guy sleeping, sir, in the hall. Captain hollers, bring him up. Who's your god? Pray to him. He says, I serve Yahweh, the one true God, in so many words. Well, by all means, come on, we're going to be destroyed. Pray to him, just in case it might work. Jonah cries out to the one true sovereign of the chaotic sea. <clears throat> and, well, he knows rightly why this whole thing is there in the first place. God commanded and the storms and the winds rose in discipline against him. And so he says, throw me overboard and you'll see who's Lord of the sea. In so many words. And so they did. And instantly the sea was calm. What did this prove? That the maker and creator of heaven and earth, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who spoke the world into being in the first place, the one who created land and waters and spoke them into being, out of the face of the deep in the very beginning, is Lord and sovereign over the most chaotic, imaginable forces of nature. So how should we respond? Verse 31 and 32 instruct us. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Again, this is one of our repeated verses. For his wondrous works to the children of men. 32, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So when you realize that you were one time in your sin, shipwrecked, thrown overboard, drowning like Jonah, like in Mitch's words, relating to the words of Jonah, the depths of Sheol, closing like bars over your head, no hope for escape outside of a supernatural act, and you realize that God has saved you, what ought you do? 
extol him in the congregation of the people. If you've experienced something significant in your life, you have unique fellowship with somebody who is there as well. I used to use the illustration often in the scripture of a shepherd who saw the hosts of heaven announcing the glorious arrival of Jesus Christ born in Bethlehem. And then you're on the way to go see Jesus, right? Lowly shepherd. And you see another man looks like a shepherd wearing clothes similar to yours, staff in hand, and his pace is quickening along the same way. What's the first thing you say to him when you run into him? Did you see what I saw? You can't even get it out before he is stammering to ask you the same question. And all those shepherds who were gathered in the field who saw the same thing, you know what they experienced when they bowed before their Savior? They experienced the opportunity to glorify the sovereign, become an innocent baby to save them, but they also experienced the sweet fellowship of, joining to, uh, of being unified in the revelation of the Word of God painted across the sky in so spectacular of a form that announced their salvation from their own sins. These are the shepherds who likely took care of the lambs for sacrifice in Jerusalem were given the first information in this kind of way that the lamb to take away the sins of the world was born in a manger just up the street, as it were, go and see. And so now that experience of those shepherds uh, demonstrates or defines a, a sweet fellowship that others could never really understand. You know, institutions recognize as much, veterans groups, family reunions. You know, what is it that binds people together in these different expressions of social unity and so forth? It's a shared experience. And, and generally speaking, the more intense, the more dramatic or positive, let's say, or uh, my, or um, earth-shattering, uh, lifestyle, life-altering the experiences, the stronger that bond. So let me ask you, by way of application, what experience ought to create the strongest bond of friendship above all others? Is it a reunion with your brothers in arms who, you know, took mortar fire in Gulf War II? Is it the experience of people who also like sailing like I do, can excitedly talk about the wind last weekend at the yacht club or whatever? I don't go to a yacht club, by the way. That sounds kind of elitist. <laughs> My boat is worth $300. However, I like sailing. I like talking about it. Is there an experience, though, more important than that of veteran experiences or that which two hobbyists enjoy that binds their fellowship together? Absolutely. The salvation of Jesus Christ from our sin. The rescue from the waves of certain judgment. The rescue from the desert of certain death. The rescue from the, uh, of those who have experienced the darkness of enslaving, uh, of that which happens in an enslavement and in prison and us being absolutely ransomed through Jesus Christ. And hence, it makes sense that we extol him in the congregation of the people. What I've just given you is the ties that bind us as the people of God, the congregation of the rescued. Praise him in the assembly of the elders. Why are the elders there? Well, it stands to reason that elders have experienced more of the grace of God because they've been in Christ longer than those who are younger. And so they have more to say uh, to obey the commandment, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Who has more to speak of the redemption of the Lord, his steadfast love and faithfulness than the elders? And this is a vision to value those who have been in Christ for a long time. Their testimony is precious. The redeemed of the elders in Christ, those who have been in him a lo a much longer than younger converts, 
they, their uh, testimony should be privileged to some degree. Why? Because they have more to say. They have more to contribute. Well, the redeemed say that God is faithful. They testify to His faithfulness across all those years of life. And it is a glorious thing indeed. This brings up our final point today, the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 107 commands the attention of one-time afflicted invalids, one-time sinners on their deathbed, one-time shipwrecked castaways or storm-tossed sailors. And the, the last point is Psalm 107 commands the attention of both the righteous and the wicked. In summary, the psalm closes this way, 33 through 34. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. How does God command the attention of the wicked and the righteous alike? Verse 33 and 34 tell us by cursing the land. By cursing the land, God calls the, commands the attention of the wicked, <coughs> the wicked. A perfect biblical example would be Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did Lot move there? Why did Lot choose the city of the plains? Well, it held the promise for greater prosperity, right? That's where the fields were greenest. And so he went there. But what in fact happened? Since there was great wickedness in the land, it turned that place into rubble. I guarantee that crops don't grow so well when sulfur rain and fire rain down sufficient to destroy a city. Likely the fertile area, depending on how widespread that judgment of God was and raining down fire from heaven on that area, it likely turned those prosperous fertile plains of that valley into a, a, into a wasteland and a wilderness that would not support crops in the near future. So you might think in the natural, by your mere eyesight, this is the best place to set up camp. However, it just so happens that the city dwellers there hate Yahweh. And they are perverted in their morality and, they have, and they're depraved in their thinking. And they celebrate that which God abhors. Is that a safe place to set up camp? Lots of experience answers that question. Of course not. Because you live under the deserving judgment of God. God gets the attention from time to time in history by cursing the land because of its sin. I thought an interesting title for a book in this regard would be From, from Sodom and Gomorrah to Gen Genetically Modified Organisms. You might ask yourself, what do those two have in common? Well, perhaps this. Let me submit to you that mankind, presuming uh, that God is not, doesn't exist or doesn't really engineer food in the first place, he might presume to do a better job than God. And rather than humbly learning from the evidence of God's genius in creation, he may think that he could create stuff himself in his own way. And if that's the attitude that governs food technology, you may very easily play out Deuteronomy 28 and turning your kneading bowl into poison. If you do not follow God's law, cursed be your fields, the scriptures say in the Old Testament, and I submit that principle still applies. God's law recognizing that he is the genius of creation and that only in the fear of him is based all legitimate, long-standing, valuable, and healthy knowledge should teach us that if we don't honor the Lord who created everything in the first place, it is very dangerous. We can turn a fertile crescent into a barren wasteland. Just look at California right now. So I heard on the news that the fires on the West Coast are equal, roughly speaking, to two states of Delaware and the area in which they are destroying. And some argue it's lack of good forest stewardship that is a direct cause for this absolutely devastating uh, fire event that's happening right now. So Nancy Pelosi, you know, whatever, the revered head of the, <clears throat> um, the uh, House Speaker or whatever, 
You guys probably know her in all her infamy. She was asked about the fires and her response. And she answered this way, Mother Earth is angry. Whether she is telling us by hurricanes on the Gulf Coast or fires in the West, whatever it is, that the climate crisis is real and has an impact. Mother Earth is angry, you guys. Now, why are we ever ashamed of our faith? Why are we ever ashamed to just boldly say God is angry? Look how stupid the alternative is. Mother Earth is angry? <laughs> that, and she says that as if it is a coherent, respectable, logical statement. She's ascribing to things that are mere maids some kind of personality. Nancy, I've got news for you. Mother Earth is not angry, but God is. God is angry at the sin of a people who reject his holy word and law. And whether it's by fires on the West Coast or hurricanes on the Gulf Coast, you better stand up and listen. I can't tell you which sin and which person who's, who's guilty that has earned a hurricane to ravage the Gulf Coast or that is a direct cause for the fires in the West. But what I, what I can tell you is that the message of an earthquake and a fire and a natural event and a hurricane and a flood is the same since the beginning. The wages of sin is death and God is angry. And the only way to escape the fires of hell or the fires of California is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose law gives us principles to order our affairs to mitigate fires sometimes, and who gives us safe passage from this life unto glory eternal through the fires of hell such that they will not singe us because the, the Son of God passes through the fire with us as it were, as we see in that glorious picture of Daniel's three friends. Yeah, this is the message. It's weird, isn't it? It's uncanny, isn't it? How close Nancy Pelosi got and how far away she still is. She ascribed a sovereign entity. She ascribed nature, to nature a certain sovereignty. There was a message. There was peril. It's a climate crisis. We deserve this. There's deserving judgment. There's an acting judge. And there's a situation from which we need escape. Yeah, it's a gospel, but it's a false one. No, we need to answer our culture's paganism like this. The worship of the things that are merely created with the true answer from Scripture. And as the Lord gives ears to hear, it will resonate. God is angry with your sin. Repent and believe. And we can use, just like the psalmist did of old, these circumstances of peril and real fear. I mean, how many can you glean just from 2020 alone? The fear of a pandemic, the fear of fires, the fear of hurricanes, the fear of who's going to be our next president. Whatever is uh, being shaken in our world today is evidence that God is angry with sin. And the only means of hope and salvation is not in voting for, you know, a better administration in California. Good luck with that. That won't help at all unless and until they repent and turn to Jesus Christ for answers, both and most importantly for their sins. Secondly, how to govern a state in a way that will put less people in harm's way. So God calls the righteous and the wicked to attention, and he does so sometimes by cursing their land. He also does so by redeeming livelihoods. Notice verse 35 through 38. This is on the positive side of the coin. He turns, just like he can, turn a river into a desert. Psalm 35 pronounces, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live. The secular uh, mindset worldview would tell you that the rise and fall of nations is due to natural resources. In other words, a nation that prospers is the one that has the most resources, the best environment, and the best government, whatever. Um, you know, looks merely to the external. Psalm 107 refutes that statement, and history does as well. 
It doesn't matter. You can have two areas. Look at North Korea versus South Korea, an interesting juxtaposition. The one barely has lights to turn on, and they break God's law with you know, so much fervor, and the other has a slightly more godly worldview. And even from, the sat- from a satellite image in space, the contrast couldn't be starker. The same is true um, in certain island countries, or dual countries, Dominican Republic and Haiti come into view and so forth. It's a green line right down the middle of that island. The lesson being this, they each have all things, it's, it's like a controlled experiment. You've isolated a lot of variables. They both have the same resources, roughly the same people and all, all of that. What accounts for the difference? Well, the scriptures tell us that fundamentally, it doesn't matter whether you are planted next to a river or a desert, but blooming and thriving, surviving, prosperity, even in these instances, socially speaking, is dependent on those who are dependent on the Lord, or it thrives when people acknowledge the Lord, because it is Him who turns a desert into pools of water. Again, think of Abraham and Lot. In the end, who had more prosperity? Well, Abraham had to go rescue Lot because he was captured by the kings in the north with all his goods, with all his livestock. That's not, that doesn't sound like prosperity to me. Meanwhile, Abraham, in faithfulness to the covenant, he dwelt in more wilderness lands, yet God prospered him and preserved him and actually used him as a delivering agent for his wayward nephew. This is the lesson. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. There are times when the people suffer well-deserved punishment, however. Verse 39 and 40 speaks to this. When they are diminished and brought low, this perhaps speaks to, let's say, the exile of the Jews most directly at times when they deserved it, through oppression, evil, and sorrow. Verse 40, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. There are so many examples of that. We won't multiply them in the interest of time this morning. Nevertheless, the principle is extolled in Psalm 107 that the righteous and the wicked are called to attention. And how does God point out his sovereignty? He does so by cursing lambs by redeeming livelihoods, and finally, by reversing fortunes. Notice in verses 39 through 41, or notice, yes, in 39 through 41, they are diminished and brought low through oppression and evil and sorrow. He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. So the princes, the ones who had a security, wealth, riches, influence, they are brought low. They are made to wander. But those who are poor and needy, he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Again, this is a cry to Yahweh. This, is, this psalm is an expression of praise to Yahweh for doing such a thing, reversing fortunes. Our worship text this morning was Mary's Magnificat, Luke 1, 46-55. She picks up on these themes. She understood herself to be a lowly and undeserving bearer of the Son of God in her very womb, proving that he raises the needy out of affliction, and makes their families like flocks, prospers them and the fruit of their womb, and so on. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. And finally, we get to a response, do we not? So there's two responses to this knowledge of the Lord. One is a shoving of the fingers in the ear at the obvious, evident, irrefutable testimony from creation and the Word of God. Everyone knows, I've used this illustration before, but sometimes what a kid, a toddler will do in the height of rebellion. He'll shove his fingers in his ears, close his eyes, tense up all his muscles, scream at the top of his lungs, or babble incoherently. And what's his goal? He wants to shut out the voice of his parents. He wants to shut out the instruction 
of the authority over him, let's say. Well, this is one response. But God, nevertheless, will not suffer the babbling, incoherent, rebellious spurning of his law or the words of God being suffered to be denigrated and blasphemed in the streets, in, the, in a society forever. Those who minimize, disregard, mock, and make small, and do not take seriously his word, there will come a day where God will shut them up. God will close their mouth. In 1996, uh, as far as I know, the most famous Muslim apologist at the time, still remains influential to a large degree to get today, was named Ahmed Didat. And he wrote a book. It was called Crucifixion, C-R-U, see if I can spell crucifixion, C-R-U-C-I-F-I-X-I-O-N. I think that's how you spell crucifixion. So his book was called Crucifixion or, listen closely, C-R-U-C-I-F-I-C-T-I-O-N. Crucifixion as in someone dying on a cross or crucifixion, a made-up story. And his whole turn of phrase there was to say that according to the superior authority of the Quran and Islam, there was no crucifixion. Jesus never died. In 1996, the life of Ahmadidat was forever changed. And the remaining nine years in, of his life were spent on a sickbed in his home. He suffered a stroke that paralyzed him from the throat down. And after that moment, he never spoke another word. He never spoke another word. Pitifully, he learned how to communicate with his eyeballs, and his wife would help him respond to letters and things like this by blinking or whatever else to come up with a crude substitution code so he could interact. And then he died. If Ahmadidat, let me ask you a question. Let's say you had the opportunity to visit a man like this on his deathbed. What scripture might you bring to call him to repentance? Well, let me suggest Psalm 107. 41 and 42. He raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Achmedidat, you lived, let me just role play, you lived your whole life proclaiming that the God of Scripture and the only means of salvation was a made-up story. And there came a point when God did not suffer this blasphemy any longer. He gave you a stroke and took out your voice so not one more blasphemous word can be uttered from your mouth. And now I beg you to repent, acknowledge the wrath that you deserve, acknowledge the sovereignty of God shutting up this voice of rebellion and place your faith in him. And you know what? I guarantee if that man repented and put his faith in Jesus Christ, he would get his voice back. It may not happen until the second resurrection, but in glory, what's the first thing he would say? In glory, what's the first thing he would say? He would thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. He would cry out in his, duff, in his dumbness to the Lord in his trouble, and God would deliver him from his distress. And then he would be wise, and in his wisdom, in his moment of awakening, in his repentance, he would attend to these things. The sovereignty of God who can touch with his finger the larynx of a rebel and say no more words out of you, who can slay Ananias and Sapphira in a moment if they lie to the Spirit of God, who reserves the right at his great white throne to judge perfectly and send to hell every unrepentant sinner. He can stand before his maker, now wise, attending to the evidence of his sovereignty, considering his steadfast love, and join his voice with the great multitude. And I pray you and me 
offering praises to the Lamb who is slain that redeems rebellious, blasphemous, one-time shipwrecked sailors, one-time hell-bent, uh, starving people in the desert, uh, people who are lost without hope, drowning under the waves of deserving judgment, rescuing them, ransoming them from their deathbed of sin, deserved sickness, unto eternal life and healing. This is the message of Psalm 107. It commands our attention. What about you? Have you considered the steadfast love of the Lord of late? Does that meditation drive you to worship in the congregation of the people, to praise Him in the assembly of the elders, as it were? Have you cried to Him? Perhaps you're not a believer in the hearing of this message. Have you cried to Him in the affliction of your sin that He might save you? If so, are you attending to these things? Those who are believers in the sound of my voice, if you, have, if you can relate, like Mitch testified to from the experience of Jonah and his own, if you can relate that you have been ransomed from the waves and from the drowning death that you deserved in your sin unto eternal life, and how should we respond? Let us attend to these things. Let us consider the Lord's steadfast love. Let us thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of men. And let us gather at every opportunity in this place to do what? Verse 22 gives us some instructions to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Let us close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your matchless word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which applies it to our hearts. We thank you for its convicting power. We thank you for the transforming work of sanctification. We thank you for the message of hope in Christ alone. We thank you for the blueprint of redemption across the board. As we have heard your word proclaimed, I pray that it would touch us where is, it is most needful. On an individual level, Lord, that you would inspire us to acknowledge your works, to repent and to believe if we have not met you in the first place. If we have, to consider with great joy each opportunity to attend to these things and to worship with your people, to lift up songs and to tell of your deeds in these expressions of the soul with great joy. Thank you, Lord, for the message of Scripture, which provides for us a necessary and helpful corrective. If we should fall short in these things, we know we need to grow. We pray that you would use the proclamation of your word to do exactly this this week, that we might be among those who joyfully worship you, Lord, regardless of the circumstances, persecution or otherwise. And may you find us upon your return or when you call us home faithful unto this call. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.